Hi, this is John Overton, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Hey, Hey, Ben. It's going pretty well. How about you? I'm doing really well uh, here. Uh, we had our uh, little Labor Day weekend thing, the super long weekend, which seems a little redundant during a strike. Like, uh, you know, every weekend feels a little long during a strike. Uh, but, you know, it is Labor Day. Every week uh, feels a little long. <laughs> as we're recording this, though, it's it's, yes. it's Labor Day and uh, the strike is, uh, if nothing else, it's about labor. So very much so. I have to imagine that there are tens of thousands of people who are all thinking about this very closely this year in that uh, everyone's labor in this industry is greatly affected. Yep. Yep. But before we get into that, because what we're going to talk about it touches on some elements of that a little bit for close focus. But who do we have on the show today? Oh, man, we're very uh, fortunate to have Judd Overton, the DP of the series Killing It. And if you've not seen Killing It on Peacock, I have to say I'm just about wrapped up now with season two, which I hadn't finished at the time that I spoke with uh, with Judd about Killing It in particular. Mm-hmm. And oh, man, it is so subversive and so wonderful to watch. It really, really does hold up a magnifying glass to modern life in America, especially with what some people like to call uh, late stage capitalism. And, you know, there's a lot of jokes about our health insurance system and the priorities of the haves and the have nots. Killing it is uh, smartly written filled with jokes and a delight. I, I highly recommend anyone who has not watched Killing It on Peacock to check it out. I, I haven't seen it, so I'll check it out. Yeah, go for it. There, there's a lot of off-color jokes. If you're easily offended by language and off-color, this is not for you. If, on the other hand, you are into that sort of thing, there is a lot of wonderful humor. There's some lowbrow humor. There's some highbrow humor. And there's a, a nice sort of like mix of stuff in between. Especially, I, I love the reflection that it's giving modern American life and economic commentary it's fantastic in that regard i i can't say enough good stuff about it all i heard was lowbrow humor and i'm in and now close focus so uh ben it is our close focus time oh what do we have to talk about this week what's going on in the world of uh, the business well, uh, like I said, it, it's only very tangentially related to the strike, but this week is the 80th Venice International Film Festival, and I've been actually getting more news in my feed than usual about Venice, and I think in part because the actors aren't really allowed to promote their own movies, and so, you know, you have situations where, like, Bradley Cooper has his new movie Maestro, which we talked about because of his uh, prosthetic nose. And, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola's got uh, Priscilla, her her biopic of Priscilla Presley. And uh, Michael Mann has Ferrari. And different actors are going up possibly and saying stuff like uh, for Ferrari at a press conference. We did have Adam Driver going up and discussing, actually discussing the AMPTP at the press conference. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, got a, he got a lot of uh, good press for that because he basically said, look... Um, <laughs> How can the big studios not do what our little independent film could do, which was to make a deal with everyone involved? Yeah, and, exactly. And I'm paraphrasing, but he makes a very good point. Yeah, it's 
honestly hard to come to the defense of the AMPTP companies. But notoriously also, I believe at the same Venice Film Festival, David Fincher talking about his new movie, The Killer, actually said he could understand both sides. And I don't think it's necessarily both sides-ism. I think that he is someone who's been in the business long enough that he gets what they're going through on their side. And when I'm explaining it to people who are outside of the business, it always comes back to the same thing, which is that these companies all honestly despise one another and they all have to come together to agree on a new contract for actors and writers. And as soon as this is over, they're going to all go back to trying to destroy each other and, and compete each other into the ground. It's it's a really interesting, you know, like I don't feel like writers and actors are like that. You know, it's a competitive job to get blah, blah, blah. But also at the Venice Film Festival, we have uh, not one, not two, but three problematic directors. And one of which I didn't even realize <laughs> was a problematic director. But, uh, you know, it's it's sort of the trifecta here. We've got uh, Woody Allen, uh, uh, Roman, yeah. Roman Polanski. And Luke Bassan, and I actually wasn't aware until you just made me aware of the credible sexual assault allegation charges against Luke Bassan. I now don't, he was uh, just cleared by a French court in June, so so the court has cleared him. But it was eight or nine women who all came forward with either sexual misconduct or yeah. rape charges against him. So it's not. Uh, it's not like a lone voice in the wilderness. So. Yeah, well, and, you know, and with Woody Allen, it really is mostly just one specific credible voice against him, but also cleared of all charges. And then, of course, Roman Polanski openly admitted that he was guilty of the assault in 1973 and uh, fled America. It hasn't been back since and uh, still making movies. It's actually kind of shocking to me, especially out of those three. And I'm not saying that Roman Polanski isn't a great filmmaker. I am saying that I'm so icked out about Roman Polanski that it's really hard for me to get excited about seeing a new Roman Polanski movie. This one featuring uh, Mickey Rourke and John Cleese, of all people. Um, wow. yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I uh, may or may not have been interested in seeing a movie like that till I heard that Roman Polanski had directed it. But with Woody Allen also, it's kind of uh, an interesting milestone also because this is his 50th feature. Wow. 50th. Yeah. I, I think James Cameron has made like 12 films. <laughs> wow. Woody, Woody Allen has basically been making one film every two to three years our whole life. Our, our, both of us, like our entire lifetimes. His new film is entirely in French. I believe that that's a first for him too. So... And, it's interesting. Uh, wow. And, and none of the stars are American stars. It's, it's, it's a French cast. And it should also be mentioned that not only did Woody Allen and Roman Polanski get standing ovations for their films, they had protesters outside the theaters. And yeah, I, uh, I hadn't heard about uh, Luke Besson. It wouldn't surprise me. But Woody Allen, I definitely heard about and saw that I was covered. That yeah, was like, that was the news story. The, I mean, the news story was, you know, Woody Allen's 50th movie. Five zero. That is a lot of freaking movies. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino's got to got to really catch up. Well, Quentin so. <laughs> Tarantino's capping it at ten, so no matter what, Quentin Tarantino will will have made. Yeah, I, I I'm making a joke because he's very famously said that ten and and done, he's out. So even like Martin Scorsese is nowhere near fifty movies. I mean, it's, it's a just, lot of movies. It's, yeah, it's just insane. Sure. Anyway. But the Venice Film Festival, I think, is interesting because, it, you know, as I look down the list of like uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's new film, Poor Things, David Fincher's The Killer, Michael Mann's Ferrari, Bradley Cooper's Maestro, Sofia Coppola's 
uh, Priscilla, on and it's on a, and on. It's a big festival this year. Yeah, it's got a lot of star power, despite there not being stars. It's yeah. a, it's really the, a. But yeah. these are the movies like you and I will hope if we're lucky we'll be getting to interview you know Eric Messerschmidt of uh, of the Killer, etc. Like we're going to be talking to the DPs who are shooting these movies, and I sort of feel like when I look at this, it's like. You know, obviously not all of these are going to be nominated for uh, Best Picture. And uh, and I think it is almost obvious to me that both Barbie and Oppenheimer are going to get a lot of major awards nominations, at least. I would be shocked if I'm not looking at two thirds of the big Oscar buzz movies right here. Check it out. Check out the lineup of the Venice Film Festival. Uh, you can there's already you're already seeing like uh, criticisms showing up on Metacritic and stuff from there. So I feel like that portends will audiences connect with these movies will we be talking about these movies you know come come the spring for uh, oscar season i'm i'm betting several of these movies are going to be getting some serious oscar talk and i look forward to uh hopefully talking to uh maddie lee Batik about maestro etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i think you're right i think venice venice is really hot this year and i think that it's um, certainly become the festival uh, of the season right now so you mm-hmm. know we'll see how the other festivals work out but uh, but yeah that's that's really interesting you know i know telluride is about to be upon us i know toronto is right behind that so yeah. it's like uh, there's a there's a lot of stuff that's about to happen yep yepers all right hey why don't we get to the interview now with judd overton here we go The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joining me now is cinematographer Judd Overton. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Judd, you know, we're really here to talk about Killing It, which has become one of my favorite shows on television. I, I actually am only just started the second season. I'm a little bit behind, but boy, did I love season one. Season one was so much fun. And my understanding is you didn't share the duties on this. You shot every single episode of, of season one. Is it the same with season two? Are you shooting all? Of, have you shot all those as well? Yeah, absolutely. I've shot shot all the episodes on both seasons. Um, you know, season one was a lot of fun. We shot it all down in New Orleans. So that was 10 episodes, all half hours, and they really are half hour episodes. You know, there's not a lot of uh, waiting for the ads or anything like that. So the, the scripts are, are 30, 30 pages plus, and, um, you know, we're really banging out, the, <laughs> banging out the minutes, banging out the page count. This is an original Peacock series, and it stars Craig Robinson, who I love, of course, uh, from The Office and, and all of his movies throughout the years. It's fun and subversive, and it talks really about modern life in America and sort of the struggles of people to make ends meet. And it does it through this fractured lens. And you'd go into all these different sorts of methodologies or situations which give uh, light to reveal just kind of in some ways how fractured and how broken our system is. And it does it with humor, which to me is just Wonderful. Tell me a little bit about coming to the show and what you think of this, the stuff that you're doing. Can you talk at all about the subversive aspect and sort of like self-reflective quality of life in America that this show's portraying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's um, it's always hard to get a, a tough message across, you know, and I think one of the best ways to do that is through the lens of comedy. Uh, I think if you can kind of get people on board with a few laughs and then hit them over the head with with some hard facts, you know, like it's a, it's a really good balance. And as you say, it's subversive. It really kind of 
creeps in there and you, you fall in love with these characters and you want to know more about them, you, you're rooting for all of them. And then you sort of start to find out, well, okay, maybe that guy who I thought was the hero is <laughs> not quite as clean cut. And, and, you know, it makes you take a mirror and look at yourself as well, I think. You know, it makes you look around and say, am I really the, the hero of my own story? You know, and, uh, you know, am I doing the right thing by other people around me? Yeah, it's so funny. The series is is so funny. It's got Claudia Adority in there as well. And yeah. she's just uh, she's like a joke grenade that is constantly exploding that like I, I, I mean, these setups and stuff. And there's really, really wonderful chemistry between her and Craig Robinson. And, and really, the writing of the show is so smart. There is a storyline with a, a character, Brock, who wants to be, you know, this middle aged white guy who wants to be an influencer. And uh, that becomes this whole obsession with his life in season one. I know I'm giving nothing away. Way now because we're, we're going back. This is established very early, but all of the different sort of aspects of modern American life and culture are playing out in Florida. And really, it's taking place uh, just before the 2016 election. And to me, it, it's a period piece. It's capturing a, a moment of the world. Can you talk at all about, you know, your conversations that you had with the rest of the creative team for setting the, this period piece of 2016? It wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago. We can all remember it. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess it feels like a turning point in the country and politically. Um, and, you know, as being, uh, uh, being new to the country myself, it's been uh, interesting to, to witness, shall I say. Um, but uh, I, I feel like looking back on that time, you know, it's a time where choices were being made and people were starting to have to take responsibility for their decisions and for where they want things to go. So I think it's a really great time to set a period, a recent period uh, piece. Um, in terms of what we had to do to capture that, I mean, there's, you know, there's subtle details and there was a lot of printing of Trump propaganda and, and these sort of things, but it wasn't too far ago that we had to change a lot. You know, we didn't have to do massive controlling road lockdowns and things like that. We had to choose vehicles that were, were age appropriate. You know, some of the, some of the cars, um, especially in the second season, we have a, a featured Ford Kia, which has to be a brand new car. Uh, 2016 Ford Kia is for some reason not that easy to find uh, in, in 2023. But yeah, so there are a few minor things like that, but generally it's close enough to the period we're on, you know, as long as the, the cell phones look right and the, the vehicles and, and some of the clothing choices, but otherwise it's not, you know, as you say, it's pretty recent history. All right. So coming up with a look for this show, what other series or works informed the way that you, you went about this? It's a very uh, big budget, glossy sort of network style look. How did you come to decide and the style of, of what you ended up with? Yeah, um, Mo Marable was the setup director on the show. Um, so we had a, you know, a lot of conversations with him when I first got involved and we looked at, you know, there was a, there was a style guide, a, a sort of a Bible, if you will, of looks and ideas. And the main thing being, of course, that it's set in Miami. So we had to really look for that in every frame and we were shooting in New Orleans. So we were shooting in swamps. So there's a lot of similarity, but just those colors of the houses and all those little sort of pops, those Miami pops, we had to kind of either find those quite specifically between other buildings or, you know, not look that way, but, you know, everything's framed this way. Or we'd add, add in certain pops and certain ideas that, that would do that. And then we were mostly looking at things like 
composition. I think that was a really big conversation we had. You know, we were looking at like William Eccleston kind of photography, things that were that popped and that looked stylistic, but we also didn't want to take it too far from the norm. We want this show to be really relatable. So we want it to, to people to be able to watch the show and feel like, look, it's not a documentary by any means. So we're not saying it's that, but we want it to be, be really relatable. We want the characters to feel like people that you might actually know, people who are actually going through things, even though they, they turn out to be quite ridiculous situations. But are they that ridiculous? You know, these things are kind of happening right now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's more like life under a magnifying glass than um, leaning too much into that network comedy look. Uh, for sure. It, to me, I, I was curious how you were going to describe it because it is a slick and glossy look that is very, very grounded. I mean, the show is grounded. The sh- like, like when I think of like uh, shows that are on Peacock, it doesn't necessarily feel exactly like that. It feels a little bit more adult. It feels a little bit more, of course, subversive. But I mean, ultimately, it feels like something that is sort of a hybrid between like what you might see in primetime television and something from HBO. What is the design philosophy that you're doing to sort of ground this in? I mean, there's not a lot of big flying uh, dramatic uh, steadicam shots every chance you get. You know, how do you make this place, uh, this world? I'm never I'm never not aware that I'm watching a show, but how do you make it grounded and real? How does that happen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've shot a lot of documentary in the past, and I think that's been a really good training ground for me for, you know, the, the way that you keep things real, the way that you, you shoot a location without it feeling too constructed Mm. um you know there's definitely pretty shots and there's definitely some heightened elements just by the nature of the show but we would usually save those for a transition sequence or as you say there might be a one-er to get you into a shot or a scene but then we really just want to land on the characters and my whole methodology for i mean especially for this show but in general is to create a space for the actors to to do their best work and i think there's been a lot of time as you, as you mentioned on the script and getting the getting the beats right, getting the jokes right, but also these guys, you know, they come from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, Dan Gore and Luke Diltradesi have been well known in the comedy areas, and they're used to shooting fast and they're used to shooting with three cameras. So it's it is a hybrid in that sense that we're trying to do, a, you know, a kind of classy, yeah, I'll say HBO style, <laughs> you know, single camera show, but at the same time. It's all going to be about making room for those performances and, and we do improv and we kind of, um, you know, they try to sharpen the jokes and, and make, make it even better on set. So we're always kind of keeping that in mind. Um, you know, we're often shooting with with longer lenses and to be quite honest, sitting the camera, I'm sitting a 135mm lens on Craig Robinson, you're always going to get gold, you know. <laughs> you can sit there for, for 20 minutes and it's just going to get better. So, yeah, I think just, just leaving room and making sure there's space for for those performances to come to life and not getting too caught up in the in the technical. Yeah, what I like about this show is that it is familiar in that I of course seen broad comedies and it's familiar and that I've seen television shows that that have a slick and glossy look, but there is something that feels original. There's something that feels different about what you've done. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily the use of a lot of mixed lighting because there's a, I feel like there's a lot of different color temperatures, but there's sort of a reality that creeps in at certain points in particular too. And I know you've got process shots. You're not just doing high key all the time and you're doing some really interesting things in this show that doesn't necessarily feel like what you would expect to see on, on network television or necessarily of like, like an HBO. It feels like this hybridization. Can you talk mm. about designing what what you ended up with because I, I really enjoy it 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, I think it all goes back to the original concept, which was almost to have each of the storylines and each of the characters have their own episode. So there was a real feeling in the first season. Uh, episode five, for example, is all takes place in one building, you know, in one house that um, Claudia's character ends up house-sitting. You know, so there was a real section where we thought, okay, maybe these can be, you know, there's definitely a lead in an intro and outro to keep it part of the bigger story that's that's continually going on. But maybe each of these can be episodic for want of a better word, but, you know, but can it, it can be its own kind of self-contained story within the, the grand scheme of things. But I think that that lineage or that concept that, you know, when you're in a space with a certain person, you kind of lead into that world and you can't help but have to, you know, move into that world with them, you know. So we're still doing the same things in terms of coverage, but, yeah, the, the lighting is often influenced by the place where they go, you know. We're not trying to stamp a certain kind of look onto onto everything. Like if you're moving into a different sphere of, of locations or different um, socioeconomic group, you kind of have to take influence by by the lighting that's there, by the, you know, by the mood that's around. If there's, you know, if you're in a strip club and there's neon lights and, you know, like it, you, it can't be the same as a, as a broad daylight shot. So you get influenced by the locations for sure. At the end of the day, this series is a comedy and people will talk about the differences between shooting comedy versus shooting drama and the different sort of tropes that might come along, you know, visually with that and, and the storytelling. What I think is really interesting is I talk to people who are not involved in the camera crafts, who are not camera professionals, is that they don't really understand how much the cinematographer, how much the director of photography is involved in crafting the composition and how the jokes play out. Can you talk a little bit about about this, maybe the misperception? Because there's so much of what's going on that, you know, if it's all just played in in one wide shot, it's not going to sell. It's not going to land or it's not going to be a thing. There's so much timing that the editing and the composition and the lighting and all of it's kind of plays together for those jokes even to be able to, to hit. You know, your process when you're on set working with this, how often do you feel like you're getting feedback on the humor or watching the monitor and trying to figure out how we can change this so that the jokes hit in a different way or hit better? What's that relationship like with, you know, with your your directors? Yeah, I think it's directors and also the showrunners, you know, are very hands on on this show. Um, You know, so I think it's a real collaboration. We will often set up the scene. We will have scouted the location. So we know what we're kind of getting into and we'll know that it's a it's a two hand or it's an ensemble with eight people and you know it's going to be a an eight page day or whatever it's going to be so we have to go into it with a plan you know the reason I like to have a good plan is for exactly that moment sometimes you go into something and it's not working and you kind of need to you know really think on your feet and be able to change things and be able to change blocking, be able to change the time of day you're shooting something. Um, we have one example in this season where we, you know, we have a big fight scene inside like a, a chop shop where the car has been taken to be dismantled. We, we started shooting the scene, set it up, and we'd already blocked out with the stunt team where all the action was going to happen. So it was a pretty well, you know, it was a big day, but it was pretty well rehearsed and, and blocked out. And we probably got half an hour into shooting and we just realised the comedy beats weren't working, you know, and and that's always what drives it. If we haven't got those comedy beats, it doesn't matter how good the fight scene looks because it's just not going to play, you know, that, that scene isn't going to make it. So we had to sort of pull up, stop for a second, re-block, 
start shooting all of the angles again. And then uh, I think we ended up falling back and, and getting our sort of our wide shot coverage, you know, much later than that once we'd sort of completed the rest of the scene. Um, but I think the, the real thing about that is being nimble and being able to change on the moment. I think that's, it's so important to be, you know, alert and aware and, and you know, have your eyes open on set and not fall into a practice of just like, oh, A camera goes here, B camera goes here. Like you really need to be alert and aware to what the, the actors are going through. And, you know, and having, you know, having the writers on set has been really fantastic for that. And obviously having directors who, who then know how to get the scenes shot in half the time they had because we've had to, you know, have, a, have an about face. Definitely original. I, I've really been enjoying it, but I, I want to go back in time now. I want to talk about how you got the bug. When did you first realize that being a DP was a career, was something that you could do? How, how did you end up doing this? Well, it's a long story. <laughs> but we, got, I, we got time. We can we talk time. about it. Okay. Yeah. I grew up uh, in the middle of Australia on a cattle station, very isolated, half an hour drive to the nearest property. And we had limited access to any technology at that stage um we would have like vhs tapes that we would my, my family would buy and we would just watch those movies over and over and over again and then we'd end up kind of remaking those movies we had a little jbc recorder video recorder one of the early porter pack ones so we would shoot these scenes with ourselves all starring in it edit them and do that sort of thing so yeah i guess i was kind of had the bug from an early stage um and then growing up in the country also we had an opportunity to see some news crews and some documentary crews would come through from time to time and I would see these guys and they'd be hanging off the back of my motorcycle as we're charging across the hills filming little segments and I was like oh this is pretty interesting so even before I knew that it was really a job or a career um, there was definitely something about it that kind of uh, that interested me when I moved down to Adelaide to go to high school I sort of kept my eyes open and um, did some art classes and through my artwork I did some stop motion super eight stuff and some photography and kind of always kept that side of things alive and ended up getting an opportunity through the Australian Cinematography Society to camera assist to work in some newsrooms and then to get some uh, a sort of a break on some commercials so I ended up working in Adelaide for about 10 years as a camera assistant running a, a rental house there and doing a number of things and after that time I guess I been shooting short films and, and music videos and little things um, so after about 10 years of doing that I applied to the film school the National Film School AFTRS in Sydney didn't get in um, <laughs> and then um, kept working kept working kept making made another short film that year that seemed to be enough the following year I got in and they um, you know they obviously liked what I've been doing like the professional work I've been doing so I got the opportunity to to go and study so I moved up to Sydney for that through some of that work uh, one of my like my graduating film uh, was in competition at Camera Image, so I got to to sort of I was sponsored to fly over and and sort of present a 35mm print I actually took the 35mm print with me on the plane so that was pretty pretty incredible pretty special experience and then through some of those wins and awards and things I started to get the opportunity to do some bigger projects and indie features a lot of which were shooting on 16mm at the time was kind of the pre before digital really became a big thing and people who who wanted to sort of get noticed would still shoot on film so I had a really good track record or a really good experience you know learning and shooting on film and, and taking things through both the first two features I shot that had some decent money were both taken through to film prints one from a 16mm negative and one from a, a 35 negative so yeah, I really got to experience that process which was really great and then um, I think you know further along and down the track these indie films you know have really helped me out learning how to be you know how to stretch a buck and how to really put uh, value for money on screen when you're working with limited time limited resources 
It's an interesting hustle. The uh, <laughs> single camera DP uh, world, as is the multi-camera, but you find yourself, like I think many DPs out there, it, you have these periods of famine between the feasts, between the shows, successful DPs, uh, one or two, uh, but who work in the comedy world. And uh, they find that when the show's over, there's always the, these moments of creeping doubt if like they haven't already secured their next job. Like, where am I going next? What is, is it going to be? Is it going to be inside the space? Uh, as an immigrant, as someone who's come to this country in the last decade or so, I have to imagine that some of this, uh, the feelings that I know that from so many people who've been doing this for a long time, how is it for you? How is it for you coming here, not your native land, coming in, breaking in, and then keeping this ball going? Because you're prolific. I'm looking at your IMDb and you've done a lot of work, work after work after work here. How do you keep that going? How do you keep that motivation? How do you keep so busy? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that it's a real world um, issue for anyone who's in the freelance world. And especially if you're in the arts to kind of have enough work to make it a consistent career. You know, we get paid well when we're working and then absolutely there's times between when, you know, it's, it's feast or famine, there's nothing, nothing going on. Um, I think I've been really fortunate that I've always tried to build a good good relationships with people that I've worked with, good relationships with people in terms of networking or whatever. But um, hopefully my reputation kind of precedes me in that, you know, apart from just having this catalog of films that I've got, you know, the reputation comes along that, you know, oh, he's not a bad guy to work with and we don't mind hanging out with him for a while. And a lot of it is, you know, kind of repeat business or, or people that I know that have just have heard that I'm might be available or, you know, I've got this little thing coming up. Would you be, would you be okay with that? And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm always keen to talk to people and, and kind of keep that open. I mean, I've done short films in the last 12 months. I just completed a documentary, um, which I hadn't done for a number of years, but you know, like I think if you just keep all of your, your options open and keep those relationships alive, you never know where the work's going to come from. I think what has been great working here in America and, and sort of starting to get some runs on the board with a, a, you know, a slew of producers means that I do have more opportunities. I'm not just looking to the same one or two people for jobs now. So that has been great. And in the last you know, two or three years has actually been some of the busiest times I've had literally booking back to back jobs and having to negotiate to go between. So that's been a really exciting time. But yeah, that's not always going to be the reality. So it's, you know, you just, uh, when uh, the phone stops ringing, it's uh, a good time to book a holiday, <laughs> as they say. And uh, hopefully that's going to lead to some more work because you can never take a holiday once you, uh, you know, once you get that phone call. <laughs> At least a not refundable holiday. Yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. that's you know I, I know a couple of people who swear that the best way to get a job is to book vacation. So they, they book vacation and suddenly you know call comes up. Non refundable vacation seems to be the the, the ticket. That's, um, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, so Judd, I want to find out what's next for you. What do you have going on? What's next in your in your lineup? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, um, you know, look, I've obviously been doing a lot of the television stuff for the last few years, so I'm really excited to have a feature film coming out, um, which is where we've shot last year up in Vancouver. It's called Totally Killer, and it's actually going to be the closing night film at the Fantastic Fest oh, in, nice. uh, in Austin in the end of September, and then it comes out on Amazon Prime uh, early October. So, yeah, pretty excited about that. It's a slasher comedy, so it's still in the comedy world, but it's, uh, again, having a bit more fun with the visuals. Fantastic. Well, let's say people want to reach out to you or they want to track you down. Are you on social media anywhere? Can people find you? How, how, does, yeah. how do people get more uh, Judd Overton in their life if they, they want to connect with you? Yeah, you can uh, hit me up. I'm on Instagram, Judd Overton DP, um, or just on the website at Judd Overton. 
All right. Well, Judd, this is so much fun. I'm so glad uh, that you ha- could take some time to be on the podcast. And thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. All right. So that was Judd Overton. Thanks so much for being on the show. You know, I know most of that show is not shot in Los Angeles, but I caught a funny little uh, moment right near Hot Rod Cameras that uh, oh, really? actually made it into the show just down the corner or just down around the corner from the shop. There's a restaurant called Lancers. It's sort of a greasy spoon. There's a oh, scene that takes place in well. killing it. That's all shot inside of Lancers, and I absolutely know it's Lancers, because out the window, if you know what to look for, you can see F-22 Studios, which is a client of Hot Rod Cameras, and I was like, I know exactly where they are. They're at Lancers, right around the corner. So clearly, I, they, I have been with you at Lancers. It, that's entirely possible. I used to I used to go to Lancers because it was an easy an easy walk from the office uh, every now and again for lunch, and uh, occasionally we'd run into the people from Airy there because it was actually right across the street from Airy, which now F twenty two is in the old Airy building, which is pretty funny. And of course, that sort of intersection made famous way way back for Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Uh, there's a Burger King skateboarding scene right near the beginning of the movie. That is exactly where that where Lancers is. So I I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, that's cool. When I saw the Barbie movie, I I went on a little bit of a of an online rant and it was I saw it when like there was a lot of like rabid conservative backlash to it and also Bill Maher had come out against it and I was like they're right this movie's all a lie there's no way you could get from Venice Beach to the Griffith Park Observatory and then back and then to Culver City and back in one day on foot. Come on. Get yeah, real. If that's your big problem with Barbie, then <laughs> that's, it's but the yeah. biggest problem with Barbie. I, I it was like when uh, 24, uh, which you and I were both huge fans of, was on television. And it was like they're going to get from Santa Clarita to downtown L.A. in 10 minutes. Not, yeah. not even with no traffic. Come not, on. Not going to happen. Totally not going to happen. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's the time we talk about our obsession of the week, whatever we're uh, all about. What are you all about this week? Are you uh, are you into something in particular? Well, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, and it was actually while I was researching some stuff for our close focus about Venice Film Festival. And there's a new Robert Zemeckis movie that uh, that's called Here. That they're I think they're making it now. But uh, it stars Tom Hanks and Robin Wright. So it's bringing back, put the the Forrest Gump band back together. But anyway, they are using an AI tool. And I think this is the kind of stuff I like to hear about how AI is being used. And it's called Metaphysic. Are you familiar with Metaphysic at all? I am not. I also wasn't familiar with Metaphysic. But one of the things that they're doing is generative real-time AI de-aging, basically. Mm. Wow. So I guess they're going to be de-aging. If you go to Metaphysics webpage, which we can link in the show notes, you'll see that they do they do a lot of different things. But one of the things that they're known for doing are basically deepfakes, which are machine learning, you know, basically driving a, a computer model of somebody's face. And they're setting it up. And I thought this was really interesting so that the actors own their own likeness, basically. So whatever they're doing with Tom Hanks, I don't know anything about the script, but f- for the sake of argument, let's say they're de-aging him 30 years to be Forrest Gump age, both of them. They could probably take that footage of Forrest Gump or footage taken around that time, build the machine learning model around that, but then Tom Hanks owns it. And Metaphysic has like a partnership with none other than CAA, the 
the agency. Oh, I do uh, know actually about Metaphysic. The the uh, founder of Metaphysic was at VidCon. We talked about last week, and I actually went to a thing. I just couldn't. I didn't place the name, but no, I actually he he's famous. He does the deepfake Tom Cruise. And yes, yeah. he's, he's very, very active in the whole movement to get AI, uh, some guardrails set up so that talent in particular owns the rights and likeness to themselves and that every actor would and that studios or other third parties couldn't come along and abuse that. They're, they're working very hard to, to turn that into a reality. And I, I, I applaud them. I, I really hope they're successful. Yeah, yeah. When I look at this, it's like, you know, we spend a lot of time, not you and I per se, but. I feel like, especially during the strikes, I talk to a lot of people who are talking about the evils that are about to be done by to our industry by AI. Mm. And it's nice to see a company that's creating tools for filmmakers to tell stories and tools for a filmmaker of Robert Zemeckis stature. Robert Zemeckis has been a huge proponent and driver of technology and filmmaking, you know, be it performance capture, which he started, he was, he made, I think the first performance capture movie with Polar Express. And, you know, you can say what you will about the dead eyed doll faces in the Polar Express, but the fact that uh, I think the next one he did was uh, Gilgamesh and that's actually pretty good. Um, but even going back to, you know, Forrest Gump, the stuff he was doing with Gary Sinise's leg removal and stuff like that. Some of the visual effects stuff. Zemeckis is someone who's always pushed the envelope in terms of what can be done with visual effects. And I'm looking forward to seeing behind the scenes on how they accomplish whatever it is that they accomplish. Because de-aging is always a mixed bag. And whether you're talking about Jeff Bridges in, in the Tron movie or Kurt Russell in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, you do tend to hit kind of a an uncanny valley wall with de, with digital de-aging sometimes it looks pretty good it's hard to get it perfect but i think deep fake is actually probably a pretty good way to get it even closer because you know because it is building it on machine learning and it's allowing older tom hanks to drive a younger tom hanks performance uh you can also run into the irishman problem where you have you know late 70s robert de niro he just doesn't have the physicality of a 40 year old anymore so it doesn't matter how realistic the the face is like there's something a little bit off about it but anyway i'm going to be interested to see how much this pushes that kind of technology because if you are able to do a live driving of a deep fake which is one of the things metaphysics saying that they can do it's called metaphysic live it, it just opens up possibilities for storytelling that we haven't had really ever yeah it, it's real-time cg and it it looks staggering the deep tom cruise uh they they use some of that some technique and it's it's really good it's really impressive yeah so i agree i agree i i think that the things about that that kind of make you go eh something's not working is like the performance doesn't exactly sound like him or something you know it's like it, the voice even with voice synthesis and stuff it's really hard to get it perfect but that those tools are you know always getting a little better yeah absolutely anyway so what is your obsession this week well, I, I think I've said it on this show before, of all of the different Marvel Universe sort of things, I think my mm. favorite one, my favorite one certainly for television has been Loki. I think Loki was was brilliant. I, I really enjoyed it. And so I'm very excited about season two coming up October 6th. So, so 30 days away right now, new season of Loki is coming. So excited about that. Looking forward to that very much. I hope that they can capture the magic of, of season one. But my real obsession this week is the fact that Marvel Studios, Disney, is not just 
not just going to go calmly into season two. They're actually promoting it uh, hmm. along with some a few other uh, different Marvel properties. But in particular, Loki is getting a 4K Blu-ray release with special behind the scenes and all kinds of extra stuff. It hmm. feels very much like something from a, a bygone era. A lot of the 4K movie releases that are happening right now, they haven't really put the money into like sort of like extra documentaries and extra special features and the sort of stuff that you kind of came to, me that, to expect. That, that is the biggest loss of streaming is like, you know, being able to watch a movie with commentary and stuff like that. Like, there, there was so much fun. We lost that, all of it. Yeah, there was so much fun stuff that happened with Blu-ray. And it was kind of like a lot of that stuff that was compiled into DVDs and Blu-rays was gold, including sometimes feature-length documentaries about the entire process that yeah. went into it, the casting, original, you know, original audition, all kinds of fun stuff that that kind of gives you an extra layer, a better understanding of who went through what to deliver what you're finally seeing in the theater or on a Blu-ray or through streaming. That information, that stuff, that I hate to use the word content because I know how you feel. But that, that, that content no, all it, got it is, compiled it, into one place. And so if you were a fan, if you really liked it, if you thought, you know what, I could see over the next 10 years me watching this, you know, maybe half a dozen more times. And ultimately, you're getting some extra money from me now so I don't have to pay for it later. And whenever I have that impulse so I can watch it, it's going to pay for itself. I, I got to say, I'm feeling a little tempted to buy a 4K of, of Loki because supposedly it's going to be chock full of all this extra stuff that is isn't seen anywhere else and is not going to end up on the streaming service. So I'm like, wow, okay, that's interesting. Physical media making a comeback. I know we've talked a little bit about this. I actually just found out recently that there is a video store in Portland. That's very exciting. Oh, wow. It has about 70,000 movies, so I'm going to go investigate it. It's like the last one, and it's a it's actually a foundation. It's not too dissimilar from like what Vidiots is doing in Eagle Rock in yeah. Los Angeles. So I really kind of feel that the physical media Media, video stores, especially now that Netflix is closing their DVD service, you know, completely forever and ever. I think the regional player in certain cities, I think that there is a place for physical media and the video store. And I think that we'll actually start to see a resurgence of this, maybe in a nonprofit form, maybe, uh, you know, something that's a little bit more than just the library can offer. But mark my words, I can see this starting to rise again because people are getting really frustrated and the price of all the streaming services are going to keep going up. And so, you know, we'll, well see. And, and also, like, I sort of feel like with a lot of the streaming services, I'll name one of my favorites, Shudder. They'll have a movie like John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness and I'll watch it and like, oh, kicks ass. And then two weeks later, I, I want to show it to, to my wife and it's not there anymore. Mm. And with that is the case with all of them. And, you know, like you'll see these lists of like movies leaving Netflix or movies leaving Prime. And when does a movie never leave? When you have it on your shelf and you can just pop it in whenever you want. And like a lot of people, I went like kind of full crazy buying DVDs back in the DVD days. And I didn't quite buy as many and I haven't bought as many Blu-rays. I've bought a few. But I do think that there's something to be said about that. Like if it's something that you really care about. And I, and I do think if, if the studios and stuff push the fact that like, hey, if you really love Barbie... And you want to watch Barbie with Greta Gerwig's with her commentary or, you you know, you want a commentary from Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling or whatever. When they put that thing on, I'm sure they're going to eventually put it on Max and it'll be cool. And, you know, they might have a couple of supplemental things on Max, but it's I, I, there's something different about it. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. I just think that, like, trends are cyclical 
And so we've all been sort of enamored of streaming. But the problem with streaming to me has always been one of discovery and one of, uh, you know, they've de-eventized every part of a movie coming out. So when it comes out, they just flip a switch. They write some code and now it's on Netflix. Yeah. You know, there's certain movies. I'm not going to say which ones, but the studios have gotten money from me repeatedly they got money from me for buying it on vhs they got money mm, re- from same me here. buying it on dvd they got money buying it on blu-ray and if, if i didn't have that movie and it was available for uh, a vod at one point when i wanted to show it to my kids or whatever it was yes they probably got money from me again as they move away from the de-eventizing i don't know what the correct word is to de-eventize something but uh, there should be a word basically following the netflix model it gives less hype and less weight to all the work that all these people have done, like sometimes hundreds or thousands of different artists working and craftspeople working together to create something to just have it be like, oh, it's another thing. Flip the switch. Here it is. It's content. It's yeah, it, it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's turning the work into content because yeah. you're Netflix or you're whoever and you're you're feeding the beast. You have to constantly be putting out new stuff. You know, the example that I use a lot, and I know I've talked about it on the show, was Orson Welles's lost film, The Other Side of the Wind, mm. which Netflix, like on the one hand, did an amazing service, which was they basically paid to get that movie out of Hawk. They paid to put the elements back together. They brought in John Huston's son, Danny, to dub John Huston's lines because he, he does like a perfect impersonation of him. Mo Henry, the negative cutter, uh, the most if, if, if one can say a famous negative cutter Mo Henry <laughs> who's cut like every negative ever ever in the history of negative cutting and she had to kind of go through these boxes and re-put it all together so it's like all this work and then and it did get a brief theatrical window in New York and LA but it didn't it was that should have been the biggest fucking deal in film history that year I guess it came out like two three years ago and instead it was just like oh here here it is the other side of the wind you can just watch it on Netflix now which I did but you know like I, I feel like it's the kind of thing where yeah. there should have been an, an eventizing of it there should have been a then there might even be a blu-ray of it but there should have been like a special edition blu-ray that's got all this shit about it your and appetite should have been whetted long before you ever got to that point it should have been something that you called two or three people about you maybe had a party yeah it could have been all kinds of stuff instead it was like oh it's just on amazon or it's on it's on netflix and now i have to you know now and, i should and watch i mean like thing. i give netflix all the props in the world for taking that on and sure. finishing that project you know it's like one of the last things peter bogdanovich did there's so much good about it but at the same time like you know uh it has it just, just as much weight as 90 day fiance yeah it's 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 just content it, yeah. you know like at the end of the day it's just making content if you're an orson welles buff you'll seek it out if you aren't you're not uh, compared to in uh ni- i think it was 1997 they re-released touch of evil oh, yeah. and w- the editor walter merch had gone through using orson welles's notes and re-put together touch of evil and they re-released it in theaters and i was a I projectionist the at one of the oh, theaters yeah. that was great and and we were running trailers for it and there was hype there was hype about it and i feel like the hype now is all about the service i.e the container and not necessarily about the movies and tv shows i.e the content inside of it yeah yeah i'll be on the soapbox uh, all week Uh, (laughs) as soon as we cut this all i'll keep yakking about it Uh, all right well ben i think that just about does it for this week where can people find you they want to find you outside of this podcast uh, please go to benrock.com and uh, you can uh, see my reel. I've been, I, I put I put a bunch of new stuff up there. I mean, not 
necessarily new, but stuff that I hadn't put there. I, new I recently to you. put there. New to somebody new, else. <laughs> new to somebody else. You can also find me. I'm still at Twitter at Neptune Salad. Wow, you haven't I'm, moved on. All right. You could. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm on Threads. Now it's it's just a freaking mess. Whenever I put, whenever I think of the really funny stuff that I want everyone to hear, I now have to like copy it and paste it in four places. It's a real pain in the ass. Sorry, Mastodon. Haven't really been doing the Mastodon thing as much as I used to. How about uh, yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is it's such a it's an odd social media network. It's all about business. And there's sure a lot of people out there who are probably looking for jobs. And let me tell you right now, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who, who have extra time on their hands. But I, I will tell you that there is some interesting conversation. Uh, you might know that I'm a little bit of a physics nerd and I follow all kinds of like, you know, interesting scientific stuff, especially about like all the different flavors of, you know, photons that exist. And LinkedIn, my feed is chock full of that stuff more than my YouTube or Facebook or anywhere else. So I, I kind of look forward to some of that stuff. Anyway, so nerd. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of fun. Uh, anyway, uh, Ben, who do we have to thank? Uh, who helped make this show happen? As always, our amazing, intrepid producer, Alana Cody, kicking all the ass, getting us interviews. We have some really amazing interviews. I'm still kind of like buzzing on our interview with uh, Alex Winter that we that went up last week. Just such a brilliant guy. So much fun. And in yeah. fact, and I'll just a quick reminder, if anyone who listens to the show wants to see what we look like when we're doing this. Yeah, yeah it's on YouTube. I know it's unusual, but I, I think it certainly was appropriate for the YouTube effect. It, it was appropriate. And, you know, it's like, go to it to look at Alex Winter, not, not, <laughs> not, my, not my messy office. Yes. And, and my total lack of, of, you know, eye contact with the camera. So, yeah, go, go look at Alex, who's, you know, the total professional. Total pro. We should also thank Ben Katz, our kick-ass editor, who uh, I think, well, hopefully we didn't make his job too hard today, but you never know. And uh, he and I have been uh, trading baby Hitler jokes on uh, on Facebook, as always. And uh, he's a singular talent and does a great job. Uh, and last, we should, as always, thank Kaze Alatracci, who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on this show. Check him out at musicbykaze.com. Definitely. Go check it out. So that about wraps it up. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.